HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Two events in 2022 offering a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect. Details at pahempsummit.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and it is my very great pleasure to welcome back to my show Ricardo Salvador, a senior scientist and director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. That barely scratches the surface of his CV, but quite honestly, his CV is so extensive and so impressive that A, it just makes me feel bad to read it out loud, and B, it would take up half the program. So we're going to just stop it there. <laughs> but Thanks, um, I am super grateful to have you back on the show. I mean, in 12 years, I've been doing this show for 12 years now, and you still stand out as one of my top five favorite guests. So I'm just delighted to have you. Not at all. Uh, Virtue is uh, definitely, um, you know, you are, I'm speaking the truth. I'm speaking the truth. So we're going to talk today about a few things. Um, One was a report card that essentially you gave to Tom Vilsack uh, in your February 21st op-ed for Civil Eats, which by the way, people, if you're not subscribing to Civil Eats, you really need to. Um, uh, so that was one thing, because uh, you reported on his top 10 priorities. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the farm bill uh, as much as we can in the time that remains. But um, I want to just start off with Vilsack's report card, because uh, like so many people um, uh, in this community of uh, food concerned, you know, agricultural concerned people. Um, uh, Vilsack would not have been my first choice for another round as Secretary of Agriculture. So you started off talking, or one of the things that you talked about were his climate mitigation measures, where you gave him pretty good points, um, you know, pretty good props for for taking that seriously. Um, But one of the things that they brought up in that um, climate mitigation measures as they were talking about climate smart commodities. What what are climate smart commodities? Aren't commodities, you know, soy, corn, wheat, rice, cotton? I mean, uh, there's something smarter than those that's not going to use as much fertilizer and water? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, you're right. That's what the commodities are. They're essentially undifferentiated agricultural products that then are further processed by the industry into all kinds of uh, biofuels or ingredients for either um, manufacturers and for food as well. Right. Now, the important thing about them is that 
they are what constitutes the majority of the acreage of agricultural land in the United States. So if you take out all of the land that is in uh, rangeland and grasslands and pasture and so on, the majority of what remains is devoted to uh, commodities. Yeah. So it, it is important to to talk about the way that they are produced. And, and actually, you're right. What, what the... What the department means when they talk about climate smart, which I'm I'm with you, I, I would prefer different terminology, but what they mean by it is, of course, uh, practices that will diminish both the emissions of greenhouse gases and in the best of situations, actually sequester carbon either in biomass or in soil. So they've got a whole suite of practices uh, that they would like to incentivize farmers to adopt. So that's what they mean by that. I see. Okay, because I was going to say, like, you can't really swap them out. That is what the agricultural economy of the country is based upon. Am I right? Exactly. I mean, that mm -hmm. and meat. I mean, these are our major exports. Um, so I really, I was like, what do you mean? You're like, no. <laughs> you know? I mean, much as I'd like to see uh, commodities be diversified into, or that acreage diversified into other crops, I, I don't see how it would fly uh, in terms of the uh, agricultural economy. Um, and then the other thing, another thing that struck me was um, breaking up monopolies, which is in fact a favorite topic of mine. I, I talk about it often, particularly as regards to the meat industry. Um, they, you know, Obama and Vilsack took a swing at this in the Obama administration and really miserably failed. Um, why, why do you think the climate or what has changed, uh, since then that we could see a more robust and potentially effective effort this time around? Yeah, well, as is usual, I don't think there's any one uh, explanation. I, I think that there's a number of things that explain why they are so keen to move on this this time around. So uh, one aspect is timing, and then the other aspect is the politics of it. So uh, this is my assessment. I believe that what happened in the first swing at it, which you just described, was that they uh, went out, did hearings, found out just what a serious issue concentration was for farmers, which uh, to them translates as essentially poor prices and not being able to really find favorable or even, uh, you know, realistic prices for what they produce. Essentially, the industry, when it's concentrated, uh, does not allow for competition, and therefore they get to name the prices that they will That's pay. That's right. So um, they went out, did their hearings about this. And of course, they needed to do that data gathering in order to have a basis on which to act. Now, by the time that they got around to uh, taking action, they were looking straight at the re-election. So if you remember what the politics of the, of the first term of the Obama administration were, uh, against what everyone considered to be a wise political calculus, President Obama took on as his first priority getting um, health care reform. That's passed. right. No one thought that they would get that done, uh, but they focused on that for a year. And, uh, and then eventually in the second year, they were successful. So by the time that they were able to move on this particular issue, they're looking at re-election. Uh, and it is pretty clear that if they had actually taken aggressive action on uh, anti-monopoly issues, that the industry either threatened them or that the administration read that there would be sufficient, um, you know, lack of support, if not direct um, action against them uh, to make them unelectable for the second term. So again, this is just my interpretation, uh, but they had so much momentum and, uh, and you know, had given so many signals that they were going to act on this and eventually pull back and I'm firmly persuaded that it was the political calculus that was, that was responsible for that. And of course, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, recover from that. You know, they just were not going to be credible in the second term if they then started that entire cycle again. Now, this time around, so there are, you'll notice that the timing is different. This time yep. coming out of the gate, they're talking about this. Um, and also here are a few other things that are different. Uh, President 
Biden uh, had identified all the way back during the campaign trail some of the priorities that he's he was going to be working on. So one was climate change and basically getting the U.S. back into the uh, Paris Agreement. And the other one was tackling economic inequality. Well, not the other one. Uh, one of the others was tackling economic inequality. And it is under that rubric that they're working on these non-competitive monopolies that exist throughout the U.S. economy. You know that another one that they're focusing on is in the tech industry. Yes. So in the food side of things, uh, you know, the, the one that sticks up uh, as one of the most onerous uh, areas that needs attention is the degree of concentration concentration that exists in the meat industry, primarily in the beef industry, yep. but also in pork and increasingly in poultry. So because of the fact that this uh, showed up uh, magnified during the uh, pandemic that the administration inherited, uh, and one of the ways that it showed up was in higher prices for uh, eaters, uh, it was really glaringly obvious that on the one hand, eaters were paying more for meat, and then on the other hand, farmers were not getting paid more for this product. So where was the additional money going to? Right. And the administration conducted a study. Their own uh, Council of Economic Advisors put out just a scathing report where they were able to document that, you know, no surprise, the industry was absorbing both the additional earnings and the additional profits. So they targeted that. And uh, because it is an all uh, administration priority, all of the different cabinet secretaries were asked how their own uh, department was going to be contributing to tackling economic inequality. So for that reason, uh, the secretary is duty bound uh, to contribute in the areas that are under his domain. And uh, these are the multiplicity of factors that are explaining why they're going after this. So they made their big announcement after they conducted the study that I just described in the late summer of last year. And uh, when you understand the way that bureaucracies work, this was lightning quick work that they did. And again, go back to what my assessment was for that big U-turn that they did in the Obama administration. It had to do with the timing and the politics of it, you know, the political window that they had to, to take a bold move. So, um, so here we are, and they are, they are taking uh, very serious action. But they do have some constraints, and it's really important for all of us to be aware of them because it explains some of the pragmatism that, that we're going to see. So, for instance, to truly break up these monopolies, this is antitrust action. Yeah. There's legal basis for them to take this up. But that is not under the authority of the Secretary of Agriculture. That would be a Department of Justice uh, authority, you know, where they would actually litigate uh, and it would take a lot of time for them to build a case, build up the documentation. Just, you know, for your listeners, one of the things that they would have to prove is that there is this dogma that is developed um, uh, in economics, that there's a certain degree of concentration that actually benefits all of us if what you're looking at is the efficiency of the system, that yeah. there's a certain scale that's required. And so it takes a great deal of discovery, investigation, documentation to show that you're beyond that point where ostensibly there's, you know, uh, you know, a high degree of efficiency to the point where essentially you've got monopoly and anti-competitive uh, environments. So it would take years uh, to develop that sort of case. And the Department of Justice is taking that up. And in the meantime, to the regular uh, observer, it looks like nothing is happening. <laughs> so they're taking, you know, a double prong approach. So the Department of Justice is doing that. Meanwhile, the Secretary of Agriculture, uh, during the press conference where they announced this, uh, I believe it was, it was in August or September of 2020, basically said that they had examined uh, where the Secretary did have authority and where he has authority is to expend funds that were uh, authorized by the uh, rescue plan, the American Rescue Plan. And what they're doing is trying to create more competition. So they can't break the anti-competitive monopolies for the reasons that I just described. So then the alternative is create more competition. And so that means investing billions of dollars in funding uh, uh, businesses and other groups of what the USDA calls stakeholders uh, in creating an alternative, a parallel method for buying, processing, and distributing meat. 
And this, in a way, would reverse what has happened in the last few decades, where essentially small and regional scale processing capacity has disappeared and been absorbed into these massive, uh, very linearized uh, plants, and of course, a reduced number of these located around the country. And of course, there are certain constraints that need to be put around that if this is going to be an effective measure. So for instance, if, if one of the big players, uh, you know, uh, decided that they wanted to take advantage of this, you know, they, you, they could just perpetuate the situation. They could just eat more government money and still continue to perpetuate the monopoly. Yeah. So one of the conditions is that uh, those firms are not eligible. These need to be firms that are new uh, in entering. And so we're seeing people aligning, applying, uh, learning how to put together those sort of systems. Uh, and it's it's fairly early right now to tell how effective this is going to be. But when you understand the constraints, uh, you know, the amount of time that it would take to pursue the strategy of litigating, and then the fact that what you're essentially asking is for a number of different organizations, uh, businesses, uh, communities, to put together a business model where they could actually cost out what a new processing plant of a medium to small scale would be, you know, you can understand why this is something that is going to take time to ramp up. But it's essentially what, what the department is trying and what they can do under their existing authority and under the constraint that they want to do something quickly. Well, something that consumers can identify as, oh, this will be to our benefit. I mean, even to this day, because Americans are so freaking addicted to cheap food, um, you know, I, I can see it's, it's an uphill, but I really see it as a, as a tremendously difficult uh, climb because um, the, the larger companies are never going to not be able to out perform in terms of scale um, to reach a lower price point for consumers. So uh, it's it's hard to imagine. I mean, I, I like the idea. I think it's a great idea. And I think it's all part of the idea of re-regionalizing our food system, which I think is a critical factor in changing the food system. But but I, I, I'm also very dubious that throwing money at a few small scale plants is going to actually um, change the trajectory of the industry, which even now, like I wanted to say something about the fact that the Justice Department has in fact been litigating uh, over uh, price gouging and price collusion amongst the four big packers, actually both in beef and in um, in poultry. Mm -hmm. And 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 these guys are walking away with, uh, you know, $27 million fine, which is literally, you know, a, a, a tenth of a percentage point of their annual profits. I mean, it's literally a slap on the wrist. There's no, they're not taking them to court. They're not forcing them into the courtroom. They're allowing these guys to settle for what is basically pennies on the dollar of what they've been ripping off both farmers and consumers for, you know, two decades. I mean, these, these yeah. price fixing cases are, are old now. They go back 10, 12 years, yeah. right? I mean. Yeah, you're quite right. There's a, there, yeah, the industry basically sees it as a cost of doing business. Yeah, absolutely. It's like any of these other polluting industries. They just pay the fine and keep on doing what they do. You know, so I, you know it's got to get a lot more. Uh, there has to be a lot more teeth, especially in that kind of thing, um, you know, in that kind of uh, uh, pursuing of, of a more just situation. But I, you know, again, to go back to the idea of like throwing money at small farms or, you know, smaller processing plants, I... I just how, how will they be subsidized so that they can compete financially, you know, or economically with the scale of these big plants? How, do you do you have any insight into that? I mean, are they going to be subsidized in well, some way? Or you know that so so exactly that is the question. How viable are going are they going to be if nothing else changes in the system, or else uh, right. are we just setting them up to fail? So that what what you're noting, Katie, is that there actually needs to be a transformation of the way that the system works. And one of the conundrums that you just pointed to when you talked about what we're willing to pay for food <laughs> is that the the artifice of the industry when it claims that it is uh, providing uh, you know the least costly food that that's how their efficiency shows up the artifice that they're using of course is to try to keep as many 
costs off the books as possible. Right. And those costs are the costs of exploiting the workers and of polluting the environment. Just, you know, two major The two major factors, right. And, you know, you you raise the the, uh, term uh, collusion in its its, uh, legal sense, but there is a way in which all of us are colluding in that intent as well, because as long as we go along with that fiction that we value a system that sells us food at the lowest possible cost for what we think is efficiency, we don't think of it as exploitation, then in fact we're validating those practices. Because if, if we step back and think about it, if we really want the right thing done in terms of the environment, then that means that we need to pay more for food. If we really want farmers to and ranchers to be paid a fair price for what they're producing, then that means that we must be willing to pay more for food. And if we want farmers and uh, farm workers in particular to be paid dignified wages, then that means that we need to be willing to pay more for food. So if, if you just begin to sum these things up, we need to have a much more serious conversation and a much more serious awareness of the fact that if we claim certain values, it must mean that we're willing to pay for them. Now, <laughs> that sounds like an elitist argument uh, when you just step back and listen to it. And there is, you know, there are a couple of caveats uh, to to an analysis like that. One of those caveats we've seen during the the pandemic, the meat industry in particular has been arguing that uh, they are simply passing on to eaters their increased costs due to supply chain disruptions and due to the fact that they're having trouble finding workers. But when you actually look at the financials of those companies that are publicly owned, What you see is that that's not the case. What you see is that they're actually padding their profits and padding payments that they make to their shareholders. Correct. So, you know, under those circumstances, if eaters were willing to pay more, the business will take that money for sure. And then they'll just, you know, pad their own uh, income rather than actually passing it on to folks, uh, all of the folks that I've uh, named, the, the food right. chain workers and farmers and so on. So there there really is a conundrum there. And uh, it seems like anytime we get into conversations like this, it always ends up in terms of business practices. Uh, it ends up in terms of business ethics and in terms of actually being enforced with proper you know business business ethics and 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 legal practices we're actually willing to to uh, to enforce to hold the industry to. Right, right, exactly. I mean, I, I never see it really as anything but legislation. I mean, the longer I've done this program, I've learned so much from people like you, and you know, it's just clear, clearer and clearer that the only way to um, you know, force any kind of change, at least in the food system, I can't speak to any other, um, you know, sector of the economy, but at least in the food system, the only way to make a change is to enforce um, existing laws and create new laws that regulate businesses, which is, of course, you know, the anti-regulation Republican platform goes back to Ronald Reagan. It's institutionalized at this point. And that's, that is a very heavy lift as well, in my opinion. I, I, I don't know how we're going to affect that, but, you know, uh, maybe all of the turmoil currently going on and the, the price gouging in the food system is, is going to have an effect. I don't know. I think most people are worried about how they're going to put food on the table right now. So really hard to say. At least we've seen some wage uh, increases um, in the last uh, 12 months or so, which is encouraging, right? Because people yeah, don't want to yeah. work for, nobody wants to work for minimum wage. That's not a living wage. I mean, why would you? I yeah, don't. Exactly. <laughs> but that, that is an example. What you just cited is an example of what we need to see more of. And it is it, it is quite a commentary that it takes a pandemic level type of disruption yeah. to, to force the system to change such that folks get a wage that is closer to what they should be getting. And... Um, the dysfunctions that we've seen in the food system that are due to the uh, pandemic and uh, some of the dysfunctions that we're seeing now due to the war in the Ukraine 
are really lessons in terms of the vulnerabilities that we built into the structure of the food system that we have. And as they hit people in terms of the wages that they earn and in terms of the prices that they have to pay, hopefully it will activate us so that we demand the kinds of changes that you're talking about. You are quite right. It is going to take legislation and government action to turn on its head uh, the fact that in many ways, uh, you know, if, if, if we go back to the first question that you uh, asked about why there was a U-turn in terms of uh, antitrust during the first Obama-Vilsack uh, swing at this uh, issue, it's because we have a plutocracy. It's because the industry is so powerful that it runs the government, not the yeah. other way around. And so that's actually what needs to shift, that the government, again, you know, uh, remembers and acts upon the authority that they have uh, over the industry in the service of the public interest. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Well, if we lose in the midterms, uh, that certainly will be put on the back burner for another term or two. Um, I want to keep moving because we have so much stuff to talk about, although we could spend the rest of the show talking about that. Um, but one of the things that struck me in your list as well was pertaining to land stewardship and measures like the emergency relief for farmers of color, the Tribal Homelands Initiative, and Heirs Property Relending Program. I, could you talk a little bit about what those initiatives are and when whether or not uh, the people who have been promised this money have gotten any of it. Yeah. Well, it depends on which of those groups uh, we're talking about. So the the one that has received the greatest news headlines is, of course, uh, loan forgiveness for African-American farmers. Right. And uh, for, for those that are not acquainted with the issue, the issue is that the USDA has by their own admission, you know, by uh, in terms of settlements, legal settlements that they've made with African-American farmers, has historically and systematically discriminated against African-American farmers. Uh, this happens because the way that programs are actually uh, dispensed, uh, you know, what you could recall the retail level, is that the level of Farm Service Administration committees down at the county level. And... Um, that is actually where the racism, you know, white against black, white against uh, uh, people of color and men against women is expressed because these are county level committees that actually make the decisions about how they're going to be disbursing federal government funds. I see. Um, so what needs to be uh, reversed is, of course, the way that those committees are constituted and the way that they're able to make those kinds of decisions on the basis of, you know, parochial uh, relationships and, and considerations. But in the meantime, you've got the very real uh, uh, emergency that if you're an African-American farmer, you have not had access to the same benefits that white farmers have had for generations, dating, yeah. dating way back to Reconstruction. And so that means you don't have access to credit, you don't have access to technical assistance, you don't have access to loans. And because of that, you're not competing on a fair basis and you tend to default uh, on loans. And oftentimes, this is an outcome that's produced intentionally. You know, loans are not made or loans are made too late in order for farmers to be able to cover their expenses. And uh, so essentially there's been a massive land loss among African-American yes. farmers. So this program of debt relief basically recognizes that. So it was authorized uh, by the American Rescue Plan. And, um, you know, there were uh, several billion dollars that were devoted to this. So, so upon uh, the signing of that bill, the USDA duly announced to African-American farmers that they should sign up for this debt relief program. Uh, farmers uh, believe that, made financial plans based on the fact that their debts would be uh, uh, forgiven. And promptly, there were a suit of uh, uh, lawsuits that were filed, 13 of them, um, huh? in various different states, beginning with uh, one in Texas and then propagating uh, you know, to different parts of the country, claiming that this was uh, reverse discrimination because the basis for the program was race. 
And, you know, a, a, a metaphor to, to think about this, you know, first of all, it's a galling argument. It's a totally ahistorical argument. Yeah. But, you know, the, the metaphor to think about this is if uh, if you think of a, of a war zone and, and uh, you know, somebody running into the medical tent yelling, what are you all doctors doing paying attention to all these sick and dying people in here? Don't you see that there are there's all these healthy people outside and they're not getting your attention? <laughs> So that's essentially what these lawsuits are doing. Right, but right. of course, uh, that that led to basically um, uh, a halt of the program while the litigation takes I place. See. So then uh, the way that African-American farmers experienced this was that they got instructions and expectations from the USDA. And all of a sudden, as they've experienced historically, the USDA is halting what they had promised them. Yep. So what USDA is doing in, in order to, to address this is that, first of all, they're not taking any actions in terms of, uh, you know, taking over land or claiming uh, any uh, debts that are going into uh, default. So that's one thing that, that they're doing. They're holding that in abeyance. But more importantly, what they're doing is working with Congress on new legislation that would not have that vulnerability as flimsy as it is to claim that if a program is based on race, then by definition, it's discriminatory against white farmers, which is what the, the legal case is that they're having to defend right, right now. But of course, all of this takes time, and uh, you know, while while in terms of legal uh, considerations, that's the way that the system works. Time means growing seasons to farmers, and growing seasons means income or income foregone to right. farmers. And so, you know, it's a real emergency for African American farmers. Uh, in terms of the other groups that you mentioned, those programs are proceeding on schedule. So there are funds that are that are being dispersed to Native American groups. Uh, it was very notable that uh, there is a recognition on the part of USDA that uh, farm workers uh, needed relief because of the fact that they were considered to be essential workers and essentially were the largest segment of the working population that continued to report to work outdoors while the rest of us, you know, safely ensconced and, and stayed mm, away right. from the chance of infection. They were out there doing their work and suffered greatly because of it. And that translated yes. into economic setbacks. And so USDA recognizing, first of all, that farm workers exist is news because, you know, they recognize farmers exist, but typically historically have not recognized that farm workers exist. But then going beyond that and recognizing that they needed to invest in helping these farm workers recover from losses due to the pandemic uh, right. is, is historical as well. So those programs are proceeding apace. So so the answer to your question is it depends on who we're talking about. Right. And in one case, you know, things are sort of at, at a standstill while we get new legislation passed. But in another case, things are proceeding. Well, that is encouraging. I like that. Um, we're going to take a short break right now for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Ricardo Salvador from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Stay tuned. We have lots more to cover. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. Today, I'm asking business owners to take part in our business membership drive by supporting HRN's mission with a $500 membership. HRN will shine a light on your work, and you'll help sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You'll also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Thank you for your support. Okay, Ricardo, yes. let's jump to the farm bill. Okay, sure. <laughs> because um, we have a new one in process right now, which will be passed in 2023. So that's just around the corner. Um, and Vilsack uh, or someplace in your, in your thing was talking about transformational change on the horizon. Do you see any transformational changes on the horizon when it comes to, say, farm subsidies for commodity crops? 
Yeah. Well, you know, this is this is a year where we can make the case that that really needs to be reconsidered. And so, um, you know, there, there's absolutely no reason that the Farm Bill needs to retain the structure and its priorities that it has from one authorization to the next. In fact, the reason that we look at this program every five years is because the world changes and we need to reconsider those changes and what the implications are for farm policy. Now, the commodity title, you know, as, as we discussed earlier, this is what accounts for the majority of acreage uh, that is yeah. out there. But, you know, this is the, the commodity production is essentially a business that, as we've been discussing, is highly concentrated. The majority of profits in this industry go to the people that that process and that trade and export those commodities. Right. Uh, the money that is paid to farmers basically generally speaking, goes through them, you know, to purchase input, seeds, uh, fertilizers, the chemicals that they use, the machinery that they use. So the machinery industry benefits, the seed industry benefits, the chemical yep. industry benefits, the fertilizer industry benefits. And then what they produce is typically surplus production. And so you've got depressed prices. And so the beneficiaries of that are the grain processing industry, you know, that basically exports that around the world, you know, they buy cheap and then they export and, uh, you know, make, make a great deal of profit about that. Now, here's the question. Why in the world does the public and, and you know, through the means of the USDA have to be supporting that? Great um, question. <laughs> and so when you look at the circumstances of the present economy and what we've been through over the last uh, five years, uh, commodity prices are high, land prices are high. Yeah. The average income of farm households is above the average income of, of U.S. households. Um, Congress documented that farmers as a whole, particularly those participating in the commodity programs, we're overpaid, we're overcompensated for trade losses that the previous administration actually caused because of incompetent trade negotiations. Right. And so it is difficult to imagine a scenario where anybody can make a straight-faced argument that the U.S. public needs to continue to support this kind of a business model. Those folks can continue to participate in that business activity because this is a free country. But the argument that the public needs to support them to do that is a very flimsy argument. You know, if the argument is there's all kinds of economic multipliers and, you know, it creates jobs and it helps to support thriving rural communities, there is no evidence of that. There's Correct. evidence that they profit greatly on the export market. There's no evidence that farmers themselves are thriving. That um, that line that I quoted you about the fact that uh, the Economic Research Service documents that the uh, average household income of farms is greater than the average income of U.S. families has to be understood in context. First of all, it, because it's an average, it doesn't reflect the reality that that income is highly skewed to a very small number of very wealthy uh, families. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, and, you know, th this is a topic uh, in and of itself. But the other thing to, to recall is that um, farm families as a whole hold their wealth in terms of the land that they have. And as I mentioned, uh, circumstances of the last few years have driven up those land prices. So when that land is sold, when it is converted, you know, um, into, say, uh, retirement income for a farm family, then, you know, they get access to that wealth. Otherwise, they're existing in this very low margin and sometimes negative return economy Absolutely. Of, of commodity production. So that needs to be the context in which people uh, understand this. And so, you know, this business model is not profiting the, the farmers themselves. This business model is profiting the industry on either side of farmers. So there is absolutely no reason that I can see why we need to continue to support that. So then comes your question around the Farm Bill. Yeah, let's rethink that commodity title completely. And while we're thinking about the structure of the Farm Bill, um, everything that you saw in our assessment of how uh, the Vilsack administration is doing on climate change um, is something that we really need to to recognize as being done 
because of the discretion of the secretary. There is no climate title in the Farm Bill. There, there is actually nothing that requires the really? secretary to do anything about uh, climate. Well, you know, look at what the, his predecessor did on climate. Uh, did nothing on climate and actually denied that it was an issue that needed attention. Right. And actually, you know, what the secretary has done now is, you know, with discretionary authority across the eight mission areas of the department, look for ways in which they could actually, you know, they're, they're beyond recognizing that climate change is a real thing and that we need to do something about it. They're looking for ways in which they can turn things around. Now, they could have taken the easy route, which is, of course, uh, the industry and the um, the groups that claim that they represent the interests of, of farmers simply wanted another trough. You know, they know that they're in a very vulnerable position, continue to ask for support for the commodity production model. So they wanted another federal feeding trough and they saw climate change being that. Uh, they organized around this. The moment that the politics of the election were clear to them, they started to prepare. And, you know, suddenly they recognized that climate change was something that agriculture, you know, could do something about. So what they wanted was basically another set of programs that made it so that if you basically agreed, yes, I'm going to implement, you know, two or three, uh, quote, climate-friendly practices from a menu that you provide me, with absolutely no accountability and with actually no verification, <laughs> then we're all for that. You know, uh, we can replace pre-existing programs. But to their credit, the uh, the administration did not go for that easy, uh, uh, you know, solution where they would have satisfied, you know, that particular very powerful traditional stakeholder of the Department of Agriculture. They actually did listen to folks that were talking about the science of climate change, who pointed out it's actually a very difficult thing to make the kinds of transitions that we need to authentically do something about climate change through agriculture, both on the mitigation and the adaptation side. So what 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 they have in place right now is, is not ideal. It's far from perfect, uh, but it is not what it could have been, which would have been a, you know, a total uh, waste of federal money. You, know, you only get right. so many swings at putting billions of dollars into federal programs, and the next time you make the claim that they're going to make a difference, you may not get that money. So the, uh, you know, our assessment, as you saw, was that they got off to a good start. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that there really does need to be a climate title in the Farm Bill. If we're going to take this seriously, then the best science and the best methods of getting those uh, practices adopted throughout agricultural uh, land in the nation need to be a part of law. They need to be enforceable. Uh, they need to be permanent. They need to be effective. Uh, and so that means that there needs to be a title devoted to that. And likewise, why should the issues of uh, farm labor, without which agriculture just doesn't exist, period, it comes to a screeching halt, why should there be marginal concerns left up to the discretion of the Secretary of Agriculture? They should be mandatory programs, so there needs to be a title on farm labor. Yes. Uh, why is it that we're living it up to the vicissitudes of, uh, of uh, whether... Uh, you know, a, a group of folks get together and sue the Department of Agriculture to reverse, uh, you know, the better part of a century of active discrimination against African-American farmers. We actually need a title that addresses the fact that we have supported a system that has built up the generational wealth of one type of person in this nation yes and deliberately therefore impoverished other people namely people without whom the system would not be viable economically so we need a title on racial equity you know we actually need to write hard laws that are subject to verification and accountability so you can see how a farm bill that actually pays attention to those kinds of issues would be a dramatically different farm bill and i believe it's the 21st century farm bill that we need rather than, you know, this uh, 1970s farm bill that we keep, you know, propping up from, right. you know, five-year period to five-year period. So, yes, there's indications that um, if in any year we can make a cogent argument for why we need to reconsider farm policy, this is it. Ricardo, we don't have a lot of time left, but I just want to 
you know, sort of scratch the surface of who we have in Congress right now um, who is working on the farm bill and who is going to support the types of innovations that you're describing. I mean, Chuck Grassley, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> you know, Joni Ernst, I mean, you know, uh, maybe Debbie Stabenow, I don't know. I mean, she hasn't been that great in the past, She's better than others. But I mean, I'm just, where is the will besides Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren? I literally have not heard one word about the agricultural community, farming practices or anything else um, that goes down in this country in terms of the whole sort of agricultural food system. I, uh, who is going to be writing that legislation? Well, uh, you're asking the question that we're all asking. And so <laughs> let, me, let me tell you that that is, a, uh, that is only an apparent conundrum because uh, the system won't shift if we, uh, if we color inside the lines. And so what, what you've asked, you know, if you just take a look at the membership of the Ag Committee on the Senate side, we could make a similar argument on the House side. Yeah. Actually, for the first time in a long time that I can remember, there is a significant caucus of senators that would resonate with a lot of what we're talking about here. You know, some to one degree or another, but, you know, um, Leahy, uh, is supportive of a lot of these things. Uh, Sherrod Brown Patrick is, Leahy's uh, retiring. Yes, well, you're right. We're, we're losing a very important pillar of that committee. But think on the other side of the people that we're getting in. So Raphael Warnock just joined. Oh, excellent. And in fact, he was the person that was responsible for that uh, debt relief to African-American farmers idea. Right. And he was supported by his fellow committee member, Cory Booker. And uh, there has been Ray Lujan from New Mexico, a new member of the committee, who also is very receptive to these kinds of new ideas. So that's, that's you know, within coloring within the lines, if you just want to work with the structure of the system as it is. But, but let's go to the way in which you can really deal with this conundrum. We're working on this. Uh, everybody that's listening can expect to hear from us and many allies on the way to, to break through. And it is this. The, uh, the Farm Bill is a perfect example of a principle of political economy that when a small group of people perceive a concrete benefit from federal uh, programs, they will organize to protect that benefit against the taxpayers who are ultimately paying for that benefit, but they don't see how they have a stake or how they either win or lose in funding that particular uh, benefit. So the, the Farm Bill costs the uh, majority of uh, taxpayers only a few dollars a day. Um, and they don't either know that a Farm Bill exists or understands how they're connected to what it legislates. So therefore, you don't see that the Farm Bill is an issue out there among the large uh, you know, population, even among the civically engaged population. They're going to be talking more about uh, wages. They're going to be talking more about climate change. But farm policy is not up at the top of the list if it makes the list at all. However, when you look at it from the standpoint of the industry, you know, the agribusiness industry sees the farm bill as this 10 billion pot that's going to go to farmers and eventually ends up with me or this, you know, 3 billion contract for purchasing, you know, of what I sell. So then they do what that principle of political economy predicts. They organize and work hard in order to protect and even increase uh, those benefits. So under those circumstances, the way that the Farm Bill plays out is that there's a very small number of organizations and their lobbyists that actually just write the laws that they want and nobody says anything about <laughs> right. it because no one actually is paying attention. So that's the way that you break the conundrum. You actually have to make it so the majority of us understand what is at stake with the Farm Bill, and you have to make it so there are uh, uh, citizens and organizations that previously haven't seen themselves in the Farm Bill, but now understand that it's a major piece of legislation for their priorities to uh, to be made into law. So, uh, for instance, environmental groups, uh, racial equity groups, the yep. NAACP, labor groups, climate change groups, all of those groups, if they brought their numbers and their political influence to the Farm Bill debate, it would not completely off-center the very small number of agribusiness groups that are just accustomed to having their way. So the way to do this is to just to grow the tent, the size of the tent and the people that are actually playing in the farm bill. And so right. that's that's one of the strategies to pursue. 
<laughs> right. I think with that we'll have to close. But um, uh, those are those are powerful rallying cries there, uh, Ricardo. Really and truly, um, I, I think I feel like I've had this conversation in the last farm bill. <laughs> In the run up to the last farm bill is like try to make people understand why the farm bill matters to them, you know, but I think the impact of climate change, which we are seeing writ large every single day with these increasingly powerful storms, uh, these unusual weather patterns and so forth. I think everyone is starting to realize, even if you were the biggest climate denier five years ago, uh, that you really cannot any longer keep your head in the sand about that. And maybe that is truly the the path forward in terms of uh, trying to to force some uh, change in the way that we subsidize agriculture and how we how we spread our food around and and who's getting what out of the pot. So um, yeah. I thank you so much for that clarity. Yeah, that is one thing. And if I may, let me add just one Please. more point that you've just made, which is very very important. So first of all, external shocks to the system uh, always stand a chance of transforming the system, if the system is sensitive uh, to that. But here's another very important thing. You you kind of echoed in your comment about the the farm bill the comment that uh, Kathleen Merrigan made when she uh, left government service and went into academia. So, you know, for those not familiar, Kathleen was the deputy secretary of agriculture uh, under Tom Vilsack and the Obama administration. In the first and term, she yeah. she said about the farm bill that she had been through enough of those cycles that it was just like Groundhog Day to her, that she couldn't see how changes could be brought about by that kind of a system. Whereas she thought that if you could persuade industry to make changes, that industry was much more agile. So she was going to begin to invest in transforming the private sector, which is, of course, where the food system is. It's a private sector enterprise. So um, here's the interesting thing about that observation. First of all, I agree with what she has said. And the problem with that Groundhog Day conversation that you just, you know, very rightly noted, that we keep saying that the tent needs to be bigger, that more people need to be aware of how foreign policy uh, affects them, is that it ends at that insight, at that observation. That should just be the beginning. What follows then is organizing, movement building, power building. And so that's what I'm saying, that people need to be prepared to hear more from many of us that are going to be following up on that. It, it isn't just an insight. Uh, for many of us, this is going to be the key strategy, the key difference, this farm bill cycle. Very interesting. Ricardo, thank you so much for your time today. I'm really grateful to you for joining me. I hope we can talk again relatively soon uh, as the farm bill processes through its iterations and, um, you know, we can stay abreast of what your uh, insights are into that process and, and how you think uh, the organization efforts are, um, <laughs> are proceeding on the ground. Um, but for now, we'll have to say goodbye. Thank you so much. Uh, and thanks to my sponsor um, for uh, supporting Supporting this program. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.